this is Samantha and you're listening to the Layman's Doctor podcast where we're bringing medicine home. In, I believe, September 2020, I had um, Dr. Tariq Parker on and we spoke about his journey, um, about being like a Rhodes Scholar, doing USMLE, doing some UK exams and getting his uh, PhD, is it or is it Master's? Yeah, both of them. <laughs> both of them. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in that <laughs> podcast, I promised that we would have a follow-up. And I think now is a great time. In the last podcast that I posted, we spoke about PLAB. And the one before that, we spoke about the USMLE in terms of the actual sit-down exams. And this comes right on the heels of, well, doctors realizing that they have other op- they have other opportunities out there but mostly because we're realizing that not a lot of jobs ex- exist within our public sector and then because you know you've had covid persons feel like you know maybe they're not as uh, valued as they think they should be and are looking for alternative ways to get the things that they want to do and I've had the pleasure of speaking to a bunch of persons who have experience in doing examinations, um, going abroad, and having these conversations to help you or persons who you may know maximize their opportunities and maximize their chances and also shedding light on why you may consider to leave or why you may consider to stay. Because at the end of the day, it's a personal decision and it's going to be based on what you want out of life. So I'm going to ask Tariq to just reintroduce himself to everybody. I want to say, but before I start, I want to say congratulations on, on like your historic match. I think everybody is so proud of you. And I'm just like, oh my God, you know, look at that. <laughs> he matched into neurosurgery at... Uh, I can't say the, the name of the state. Like, I'm not going to embarrass myself. Mass- <laughs> you, you know that? You know Massachusetts that, General. Yeah. <laughs> you know that viral video where the lady's like, Massachusetts, you know, what is her name? <laughs> that is how I feel. So, I can't pronounce it. No, you can just say, we can just say Mass Gen. Mass Gen. I like that. And Mass it's Gen. also yeah. on the Harvard. So, you know, that's really amazing. And I'm so proud of you. And I remember um when match day came how how jamaica really rallied behind you and rallied behind a lot of the other young doctors who also matched and there are so many i'm realizing that didn't really publicize or didn't really tell anybody that they were working on it and they got through and i'm just gonna leave some dead air so you can maybe read between the lines about the culture really of how persons sometimes feel about studying abroad and or trying to do exams to go abroad you know said a lot without saying a lot so (laughs) just introduce yourself first again i really encourage you to listen to the other podcast i'm going to link it below yeah so again thank you for having me back sam of course um so uh i'm Tarek parker uh so i went to well the wilma's boys school first and foremost which made me who i am um (laughs) Thereafter, I went to the University of the West Indies. I graduated MBBS class of 2K14. Um, after that, I did my internship at the Spanish Town Hospital, which was truly a formative experience. As you know, uh, Spanish Town is a great place to, to train. 
uh, during that year, I was fortunate enough to, to get the Rhodes Scholarship, which sent me off to Oxford, um, where I did my master's in my first year uh, in neuroscience, uh, primarily doing research in neural stem cells, um, looking at how we could use um, induced pluripotent stem cells and stimulate neurogenesis to treat neurologic disorders. And then in my PhD, uh, from 2016 till I completed it in the latter part of 2020, beginning of 2021, um, I was doing uh, functional neurosurgery research. So looking at the physiology of chronic pain through invasive devices, things like deep brain stimulation, uh, spinal cord stimulation, and dorsal root ganglion stimulation. So finished my PhD earlier this year, and you know, in that time frame between completing the PhD and, and now I had applied for the match and recently, as you said, matched at the Massachusetts General Hospital in neurosurgery. And so I started my residency in uh, end of June, beginning of July. So I'm about a few weeks in. So forgive me if I sound a little sleepy, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's been internship all over again. All right, so we are really doing this uh, podcast to talk a lot about the match process because there is so much information out there on how to do the exams, how much it costs, you know, what to expect, what resources to use. But that's only half of getting into the States. The other half is really about, well... I've done the exams. I have amazing scores. I have an amazing resume. How do I transform these things that I've done into actually getting into the, the residency program um, that I want? And in these next series of conversations, I think with the other persons who I speak to in continuing my alternative pathways um, series is that I really want to focus on the how. And I, I guess the why, but the why is really going to be different for everybody else. But the how, and we can see how it is. Before we had started the podcast, I made mention of one of the resources that you had shared with us last year. It's the match, National Resident Matching Program. Is it charting outcomes in the match, international That's medical right. graduates? I still That's actually right. have it. On oh, my yeah. on my tabs from the la from yeah. last year. Oh no! I think anyone who's interested in matching into any program in the United States should have that mm -hmm. in their bookmarks. It's a great document. And this one was from July twenty twenty that I have open. But the the what it talks about is the characteristics of international medical graduates who matched to their preferred specialty in the twenty twenty main residency match. The thing is, this is, I think, this is a research that they come up with every year. I haven't looked up for the yeah. 2021 one as yet. I don't think it's come out yet. Because it yeah. is July. But it not only compares international medical graduates to each other, it compares them with international medical graduates who are U.S. citizens or residents. It compares right. it with non-U.S. citizens, international medical graduates, and also persons who are native to the U.S., meaning that they actually studied there. So you can really compare. And it talks about the number of persons who match. They talk about their characteristics, meaning like did they have research publications and whatnot. 
And why I keep bringing up this is because for me, from what I'm hearing is that matching is just all about strategy, right? And the more information you know is the better you're going to able to strategize. And we had alluded to a lot of that in our last podcast where you knew from the get-go that you wanted to do neurosurgery. That was your ultimate goal. And you aligned your life in a way that it would maximize your potential for matching. And you have. So we'll see that. And you talked about doing your research and doing a lot of research and seeing how you could really shine with that. Mm -hmm. And I know that one setback that people are going to have when this comes out is like, well, it's Tariq. You know, he's Rhodes Scholar. He's, <laughs> you know, he has a PhD at like 20, whatever. You know, he was really bright in school and everything. But it's, for me, it's really all about principle because I don't think the things that you did, they're, mm-hmm. they are amazing. They really, really are. However, you can also make them more generalized into a strategy where you said, okay, I, this is my goal. How am I going to achieve my goal? And you gathered as much information as you would need to get to that goal. And you just did what you had to do. So what I'm trying to say is while Dr. Parker is the one here talking, I don't want anybody to feel like they have to, if they're not at this super genius level, which is what persons have called you in my WhatsApps, right? He's just like, wow, he's a super genius. But you don't have to be at that level in order to get what you want. You're just you just have to know what you want, do the research, and then find the easiest route for you to get there. Simple sure, as that. Sure. Sure. So uh, I would say I would say also that like honestly, you know, whatever I've been characterized before, people that know me personally know that I'm a normal person, <laughs> right? Like. I go, I love, I love Soka, like, you know, I do all the things. Um, I think primarily what's important is that it takes a village. Mm-hmm. And I mean, to your point, I honestly feel and appreciate so much any of your listeners, all the Jamaican people that have supported me along the way. Those people were instrumental in me being successful. Um, so at no point in my entire career did I feel like I was doing this alone. I felt like I've always had a village, a community around me that supported me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's integral for anyone who wants to achieve anything. Um, it's instrumental to realize that, that, you know, who you surround yourself with, the people that are supporting you are going to be the real uh, influential factors that can maximize your success. Um, and so, you know, to that point, I think uh, when I was applying for the, the match, I was actually in Jamaica at first, you know, I was in Jamaica in for, you know, from like March of 2020 mm-hmm. um, during that initial lockdown period. And at the time I actually did not plan to apply for residency. At the time I was doing more research because I thought that that was the best way to maximize my, my profile. But of course COVID happened. Um, and so the research stalled and that kind of allowed me to shift my frame of reference away from doing more research towards let's you know apply for residency i have the time now mm-hmm. um let's do it so I, I i had you know my dad was was instrumental in ensuring that like i had the 
the space to, to do the work that I needed to do. My friends were always really supportive. And then my mentors, uh, and I, I think we should speak a lot about mentors in the match process because those people are going to be instrumental in a successful match, um, both you know locally and internationally. Uh, those in the U.S. in particular being influential. Uh, I think those factors were really important um, in, in successfully matching into, into the U.S. All right. So, wow. Matching seems, it always seems very daunting. I think a lot of persons really want to know how it's done. In one of my podcasts, we did talk about matching a little bit in terms of using the resource that, that you right. would go on to match. But can you just give us a little rundown on on the technicalities of matching? So I wanted to talk first about like our what website do you use or how do you how do you say, hey, I'm putting myself forward to match into this program? Sure. So I mean the first step I think is gonna be going on the ECFMG website. So that's the uh, Educational Commission for Foreign Medical Graduates. Um, that's the first step, and that's the first thing I did in March of 2020 when lockdown happened, just to read what I needed to start doing to apply. So a part of it is just registering, and that's expensive. It costs maybe like 500 US dollars just to register to start the process. Um, once you've registered, they will require verification that you're even a medical doctor. Right? They need to know that you're graduated from a medical school that's accredited. Um, and a part of that's going to be reaching out to, you know, for us, it's University of the West Indies or any of your, you know, anyone who's not at UA or didn't train at UA anywhere else um, to your home institution to get your transcripts and verification that you indeed graduated from this program. That can be also a challenging process, especially you know, if they're like administrative hurdles, you know, I had to, I'm glad I was there to go in person and, you know, kind of ensure that people knew that this was something that was time sensitive. But um, once that's done and you're registered, then you can now apply to do step one. Um, and so that application also is somewhat lengthy. So you really need to give yourself a wide space of time uh, to, to apply. So you apply for step one, again, that costs about $1,000 to apply for step one. And a part of that is just setting up your eligibility window, your eligibility period. So you need to have an idea of the three-month period that you think you'd be prepared to take step one. And I think we spoke a bit about step one. Yeah. Um, but just in terms of preparing a strong application, I cannot underscore enough how important your USMLE scores are. Uh, especially if you want to go into a competitive program. Now, as you've alluded to, you know, step one is going pass-fail. I think, as, as you know, many people celebrate that change. I think for international graduates, it's going to be a, a one that's hurtful, mm -hmm. largely. Um, I think for international graduates, that's been one of the ways that we can distinguish ourselves. Um, and so anyone who's interested in applying to the U.S. and have the latitude to take step one before it goes past fail i would recommend them doing so so that's what i've recommended to friends that are interested that you know have the time to prepare now if you can take step one before january of 2022 that could likely be in your um could be advan advantageous 
uh, to your application. Because it could mean that you have a score and that anyone else who's applying in that following cycle doesn't have a score, they just have a pass. Um, and I think that could, be a, could make a big, a big difference. But then, you know, people think what's going to happen when step one goes pass fail, you know, I don't have time to, to take step one right now, I'm going to have a pass fail, what do I do then? What a lot of programs are going to end up doing is shifting their emphasis to step two. So step two will still have a score. And for that reason, you need to maximize your score on the step two CK. Um, and for a lot of programs, that is an emphasis, um, particularly in like internal medicine programs. They do care a lot about your step 2 CK score. A lot of surgical programs de-emphasize the step 2 CK score. So, for example, while I was applying to neurosurgery, step 1 was the most important. Mm -hmm. um, there were lots of applicants who had not done step 2 at the time of their application. Um, and most programs didn't care. I, that's not the same for internal medicine. Not the same for things like neurology. Um, and so I'd recommend like, or pediatrics for that matter, if you want to do those programs, you should have a good step two CK score. Now, what's a good score? As you alluded to that charting outcomes document is crucial. And that was probably the first resource that I found most useful. Um, and this is before March of 2020, when I was, you know, even thinking about applying to neurosurgery, what are the characteristics that I needed to have to be a successful applicant? And you can literally see what those characteristics are. They break it down by if you're a U.S. resident or a non-U.S. resident, how many publications did a successful applicant have? What was their USMLE score? Uh, how many, um, you know, what kind of clinical experience did they have? Did they have graduate degrees? If you can align yourself with those features, you're maximizing your chances of matching. And so that's essentially what I did. I said, okay, I need to have X number of publications by the time I apply. And so I work towards that goal. You know, I have to have, you know, a USMLE score that's greater than 245. I work towards that goal. Uh, I think hitting those milestones and checking those boxes um, are how you prepare a strong application. So that kind of, in a nutshell, kind of compresses the USMLE score part of your application. I think in terms of resources, we spoke about the fact that UWorld is probably the most important one. Um, and as a resource text, first aid, I think those mm -hmm. two are, are instrumental and should always be a part of someone's preparation. Outside of USMLE scores, because that's just one component, US clinical experiences are really, really valuable. And I can't underscore how invaluable that would be for international graduates. Now, what would those clinical experiences look like, especially now that those experiences are, are difficult to come by? Mm -hmm. uh, one is a sub I. Um, and a sub-I is what they're called a sub-internship, um, is essentially a rotation that happens during medical school. So if any of your listeners are in medical school and have like an elective period, they should look into trying to do a sub-I, which is a formalized educational program at these institutions in your intended specialty. Because if you can do that, they will structure time for you to spend in the operating room, um, with academic activities, and there's a formal evaluation at the end. And that sub-I is probably the most valuable type of U.S. clinical experience one can mm. have. Do you think it's also good to also go to a location where you possibly will want to match into as well, if you're thinking that far ahead? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I think if you can target a place that you're very invested um, in being, for example, I ended up doing a rotation here at Mass General um, and I laid the, the groundwork during that rotation mm-hmm. to eventually match here. And I think it was a part of it's just building relationships with people. Um, and, and people don't realize that when you match into residence, it's not just a job. This is a relationship. It's a family yeah. that they're building. Um, for example, neurosurgery is seven years long. That's longer than many <laughs> marriages in the United States, right? So these people are essentially getting married to these applicants. Mm-hmm. They want to know who you are. They want to have a sense of what kind of personality you have. What's your work ethic? What's yep. your passion? Where do you see yourself going? And that's something you can lay the groundwork for really early on by targeting the place. I've realized that while here in Jamaica, especially in Kingston, we were really big on what high school we went to and everything yeah. that in the states especially persons are always so proud to say what university they went to or where they did their residency it's they have a lot of alumni pride um unfortunately i don't think our same pride in our high schools really translate to our pride to when we go to university and Mm -hmm. it's gonna for me always gonna link back to i think people are gonna be proud of being a part of somewhere where they where they feel valued and they feel like uh, they are given opportunities and they also feel like they're way more willing to also give back and and wave the flag high and proud so i really do get that impression that going on to residency programs abroad is definitely about more than just hey i'm gonna go read my book Mm -hmm. learn my skills Mm -hmm. and then leave no, for sure. And I mean, like, I think part of that difference in terms of our emphasis on high school in, the, in Jamaica and, you know, uh, colleges in the U.S. is, you know, the diversity of each experience in each place, right? Like, in Jamaica, we all pretty much attend two or three universities. Yeah. So there's not, there isn't as much tribalism, right? Like, I can't be, like, super excited about UA when most of the people I went to school with went to UA too. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there isn't that same tribalism, but we have that tribalism around um, our high schools, whereas here in the U.S., like, nobody knows each other's high schools because there are just way too many. Um, but everyone knows universities, yeah. especially very elite universities. So to your point, I think if you can um, get a rotation at one of these elite institutions, that really helps. Um, not just, you know, for your likelihood of matching at that institution, but also your likelihood of matching at any institution because those names carry weight. Uh, you know, the Harvards, the Yales, the Stanfords, those kinds of places, uh, if you can have a mentor there, someone who's going to write a letter of recommendation, mm-hmm. which is kind of my second point, um, those places can be very, very influential. Um, so, so I, I mean, and to, to just kind of wrap up the U.S. clinical experience part, sub-eyes are one that can only be done through... Uh, medical school your medical school has to kind of sponsor you to do a sub i the other ones if you've already graduated are either fellowships or observerships Mm -hmm. Uh, so a fellowship can take the form of a pre-residency fellowship or a postgraduate fellowship Uh, a pre-residency fellowship is almost like a sub i some of them are paid some of them are not paid but you essentially do clinical activities and research Um, and those are interesting uh, i think it's not something I've 
done myself, but from what I've heard, it's a great pathway for lots of international graduates. Um, the postgraduate fellowships are usually primarily research. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't have clinical duties or responsibilities, but you'd be doing research with someone who is uh, an attending, a faculty member in your um, institution or department of choice. And those things still build experience in that place, um, offer you some U.S. clinical experience, but most importantly, and this is the third part of building a strong application, is getting a good mentor and a reference letter for your application. Someone asked me if when they get letters of recommendations, if they, they can use letters of recommendations from persons here locally. Right. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I um, used a, a letter from um, a surgeon I worked with in Jamaica. Um, and I thought that that was a really useful one because they knew, you know, me as a medical student, knew me as uh, as an intern and kind of had a sense of my clinical work ethic. Um, unfortunately, those letters are not as valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's largely because they don't know who this person is, right? Um I, my other um, recommendation letter was from my, um, my supervisor of my PhD in Oxford. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, he's a very accomplished uh, academic in the UK, but again, not very many people in the US knew of him, right? Even though he's very accomplished, he has a Wikipedia page and all that, they still don't know. It's a very insular place, mm-hmm. the US, right? So if you even have somebody who's well-known internationally, doesn't necessarily translate to your reference letter. Some people knew him, some people didn't. The letters that mattered the most in my application, I would say, were the letters that were from U.S. neurosurgeons, U.S. faculty members who were high in their um, in the departments and very well renowned in the field. Um, so I had one uh, from the chairman at Mass General, and I had one from a chairperson at University of Pittsburgh, where I did another. Uh, observership mm-hmm. and I think those two uh, reference letters were the most important reference letters because they could speak to this guy uh, knows what he's doing in a US clinical environment and he has good research skills he'll be a good applicant you know and that's essentially a stamp of approval for lots of other US programs to say okay not only does this person know how to answer standardized questions on the USMLE but they'll also be able to function in the U.S. environment. Okay. And that, that's, a, that's probably the most important thing you can do for your application. I have two questions before sure. that I want to bring it back to, to something else. Um, I also got asked about getting a letter of recommendation from someone practicing in Jamaica but studied in the States and getting a letter of recommendation from an alumni. Like they're, going, they're applying to match to that same... Um, residency program and they've asked someone who went through that program and is now their consultant to write them a recommendation what do you think about that yeah i think those two could be very useful as well um i think if you do have uh, a consultant who's trained in the u.s that letter could probably be more useful for their institution in particular because their institution would know them Mm -hmm. well um and I think that's really the point of these reference letters and the value of the reference letters is when you apply and they see a name, do they know that name? That's really what happens, right? Okay. It's not necessarily 
what you know, because your scores can be great, it's who they know. Okay. Right? Um, so if, you know, you're applying to um, University of Miami and, you know, you have a reference letter from someone who trained at, um, you know, Penn State, like that reference letter is still good, but they probably don't know this person, mm-hmm. right? This alum of Penn State. So it's still good. It's just not as valuable as like if you had a reference letter from somebody who graduated from the University of Miami. Then they'd be like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, John Brown. I remember him. He was a good guy. Like, yeah, you know, absolutely. I like I like this reference letter. This is useful. Um, and bear in mind, they'll probably call these people, yeah. right? If they know that, you know, Tanya Clark was, you know, this excellent clinician and you're right, she's writing a letter of recommendation for you, they'll give her a ring and say like, hey, tell me more about Samantha. Like, what was your experience with her or whatever? And that could also be really useful. These are the things that happen behind the scenes mm-hmm. that I've heard of. That I, I, didn't, I mean, I only heard because, you know, my mentors would say like, oh, X or Y are interested in you. Um, and that's just because they heard, they know their names and they have their numbers. So following up on that, I know that having relationships are important. And this is a topic that we have, I've spoken about a lot in USMLE-based um, podcasts. When it comes on to keeping those relationships because i know obviously you went back to the uk you went to jamaica how did you maintain this relationship with your mentors and just keep it going so that you can reach the point and say hey can i get a recommendation versus i don't think anybody wants to do a rotation in 2018 and then you're trying to match again in 2022 and you're like hey Mm -hmm. can you write me a recommendation they're like um who are you you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I am not well poised to answer because my time from doing the rotations to applying were fairly short. Okay. So I did one rotation in 2019, the other rotation in 2020. So I still had like, you know, it was fairly recent that I'd spent time at these institutions. Did you still keep in touch though? Right. So, so this is kind of the, the best way I would say I was doing research with them continuously. So after I left the University of Pittsburgh, I was still doing research with this um, chairperson at the University of Pittsburgh. So we would talk over email about, you know, the research project, uh, you know, the current state, you know, what, you know, he'd, I'd send a manuscript draft, he'd send me track changes, you know, things like that were how we kept in touch. Um, similarly with, with Mass General, like I did research with them. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, probably the fourth important component that we don't emphasize enough is how much in the U.S. they really value research and publications. Okay. Um, and so if you, uh, as a international graduate, can be useful, can, you know, bring value and, and have, make a meaningful contribution in an academic sense, that's a, a one way to maintain that relationship. Now, otherwise, if you're not doing research with these people, I guess you can send emails or, you know, like, hey, you know, just letting you know that I'm planning to apply X time, uh, you know, would you be willing to be a, um, a referee? That's probably okay. But there, I mean, a lot of these people are really busy. Yeah. So I, I would not, it would not be strange for them not to respond mm-hmm. um, if it's not really valuable to them. for them. Yeah. Right. Um, so I would definitely say 
bring value, you know, and whatever that is, whatever that looks like, I, I think research is the best way because a lot of these people do want to have, you know, high impact publications uh, with people from all over the world. And if you can do that for them, then that's going to be a good way to, to keep in touch. I can see how listening to this might be really daunting for others, but I'm just going to say, guys, just literally go back to that publication that comes out every year and talks about the characteristics because yeah. remember Tarek is talking from a position of wanting to apply for neurosurgery which is extraordinarily competitive same for um residencies like like orthopedic surgery plastic surgery exactly yeah. that's why it's so important to know where you want to be but Right. Is there like a match portal? What did you use to apply for your matches? Yeah, so uh, there's the NBME. But the NBME is essentially the portal that you use to create what they call an ERAS application. Mm -hmm. uh, and so once you've made this ERAS application, you're essentially curating what your profile looks like. So you're essentially making a CV. Um, and and I, again, to your point, you know, research isn't what you need to do. I think there are lots of successful applicants who don't have any research, mm -hmm. but have had U.S. clinical experience. There are some that have had no publications and no U.S. clinical experience. Um, mm -hmm. So that point should absolutely be made that, like, it is not impossible. Um, but if you want to maintain contact and really have a good, you know, uh, a good chance of matching at uh, elite institution, that, that's kind of the, what I would recommend. Um, but to say that you're building a profile, you have to maximize your profile any way you can. Yeah. And so for me, um, a part of that was research. And I think if you think about research, not necessarily as like, I don't have the resources, uh, you know, I don't have the expertise to do it. I think that's, you know, you're defeating yourself already because bear in mind, when I went to Pittsburgh, they didn't give me any resources to do research with them. I had to create a project. And you can create a project yourself in your living room, mm -hmm. right? You can decide that you want to do a literature review on um, how bubblegum can treat um, ileus, post-operative ileus, <laughs> you know, like bubblegum therapy. Why is that exactly what I thought you were going to say? Because when, when, when you chew bubblegum, you get gas. Yeah, you get that. <laughs> but, 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 but this is a real thing, right? Like people have published on the use of bubblegum in shortening post-operative ileus. If you're working at KPH and you see ileus all the time, you know, you can write something on this, right? It's just, it's just writing. And sure, it takes a little bit of, you know, there's a hurdle to overcome in terms of just getting it done. But once you start doing it, people really care. Um, especially, you know, people who want to publish, they will just say, okay, this is a rough draft of something and they'll, you know, help you curate it. And I mean, that's something that I think a lot of us don't do enough of. But yeah, so to, to answer, you know, in terms of the portal, um, once you've done your steps, uh, you want to go onto this ERAS website um, and the ERAS website is essentially going to create a CV for you. So, you know, your name, your um, address, phone number, email. Um, the important bits are going to be your USMLE scores, um, what your relevant clinical experiences and work experiences have been, 
Um, and and I, again, I wanted to underscore that that is something that is very valuable, um, is your work experience. Um, if you've been working um, in anesthesiology for three years, like that's really valuable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of U.S. programs want to see somebody coming in that knows what they're doing, right? If you've been placing epidural catheters, if you've been doing nerve blocks for the last three years, you'll be an excellent resident, right? So I think anyone who has that kind of work experience, that's something that is detailed in this portal. Um, and that can be to your, to your benefit for sure. And then in that same portal, you'll start to look at programs. And you're essentially like searching for neurosurgery programs or searching for pediatrics programs. And there will be oftentimes scores, if not hundreds, of programs all across the United States. And you have to now decide which ones you are going to send your application to. So this this portal essentially generates a CV with your USMLE scores, your medical school transcript, your reference letters. All of those things are sent to any program that you check the box on. And so it's, you know, sometimes it's kind of a scattershot. I think most people will tell you if you want to match successfully, you should cast a very wide net. Now, casting a wide net can be expensive. Mm -hmm. So for each program after like the 20th, you're charged, you know, like another $50 or something like that. So it's, wow. it could end up being like if I applied for 80-something programs in neurosurgery, it, that could be, you know, a lot. somewhere around $2,000, $3,000. You know, like you could have a very expensive application just because you're casting a wide net. Now, you have to decide, you know, where you're going to stop and to what degree you, you need to cast mm-hmm. a wide net. But I, I will say from my experience... Most people will apply to almost every program and you will probably get responses from 5% or 10% of those programs. Okay. And that's kind of disheartening because, you know, you spent a lot of money to apply to these places, but you never know which one's going to be the one that responds, right? So you want to give yourself the best possible chance of, of getting um, a response from these programs. And uh, that's to the point of like, how do you match, right? Mm-hmm. The question of like, how do you successfully match? Now, you need to essentially get as many interviews as possible. You need to have as many places looking at your profile, thinking that this profile that you've curated is interesting enough to invite you for an interview. Now, why, does that, why is that important? If you look at that same document that we spoke about at the beginning, the charting outcomes in a match, the more interviews you get, the higher the likelihood you'll match in your intended specialty. Right? This is just within one specialty. So if you say you want to do pediatrics, mm-hmm. if you get 20 interviews in pediatrics, you're almost guaranteed to match into pediatrics. Whereas if you get like five interviews in pediatrics, you probably have like a 40-50% chance of matching into pedi- pediatrics. So if you cast a wide net and get as many interviews as possible, that increases your chances of matching. Mm-hmm. Now that's just the first step, right? The first step is to get these interviews, which is why you prepare a strong application. Once you've gotten that, you know, group of interviews lined up, you now need to maximize the interview, each interview, because if they don't rank you after interviewing you, it didn't make any sense that you interviewed there, right? So how this process works is an algorithm that essentially tries to create the best balance between 
what the applicant wants and what those programs want. So the algorithm is preferential to the applicant. So if you as an applicant say, you know, you're ranking 10 programs that you interviewed at from one to 10, they want to try and get you to your number one spot. And then they look at their institution that you're interested in matching at. That institution's probably interviewed 40 candidates. They'll say, okay, in these list of 40 candidates, where do you fall? If you fall in their top 10, for example, and they take 10 residents a year, you're going to that institution, right? That's how it works. Okay. If, you, if they, if they, if they if the, the match will try and ensure that you end up at your preferred location. Now, if you don't end up in their top 10, you could still match at that location. Because remember, those top 10 applicants, I've interviewed at lots of other places. So they might not have ranked this place number one. It just ensures that you try and maximize where you could potentially go if that's your preference. Um, there's actually a great video on this because it's really complicated. It's a great video. It's really simple. Is it how the NRMP matching algorithm works? It's literally on the landing. Yes, yes. Okay, exactly, I have it. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's a super, super simple um, description of what happens. But essentially, you're, matching, you're, you're ranking your programs from one to whatever, however many you've interviewed at. Don't rank programs that you didn't interview at because clearly they don't know you, so you're not going to match there. But if you rank the places that you've interviewed, they'll also rank you, and then they'll try and get that optimized. That's the, the mm -hmm. simplest way that I could, I could describe it. So within the interview process, there's a, a lot you can do to try and get your name higher on their rank list, right? And again, you know, this is kind of, I feel like I'm uh, a broken record here. It's all about preparation, 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 right? So you prepare a strong application, you know, you prepare for the USMLE. Now you need to prepare for the interview. And what does that preparation look like? One, you have to do your research. And a part of that research is what is the program, once the program has invited you to interview, what's this program about? Where is it? Like, what are the strengths of this program? What are the weaknesses of this program? What does this program care about? Right? That's just a program. Then you want to look at who is the chairman of this program? What's their name? What's their interests? Where are they from? Where do they go to school? Same for the program director, right? The chairman and the program director are the two most important persons that you probably need to get a sense of because those people can likely make the difference between you matching and not matching. If a chairman mm -hmm. or a program director likes you as an applicant, you're almost certainly going to go. So those are the two most important people to get a sense of who they are, what they care about, and you should probably prepare something that you would say at the interview that could you know, speak to their interests, right? Like if you know that the chairman is interested in high-frequency ultrasound to treat essential tremor, or you know that the program director served in Afghanistan, say something like, you know, thank you for your service, right? Like something like that shows them that you did the work of yeah. caring about them. And that you want And to that's there. something that, exactly, right? I mean, that demonstrates interest. So, so that's something that I think is really important is like researching the program, the chairman, the program director, but then even, you know, all the other faculty members, I would say you should, when I was applying and doing my interviews, I had a little book 
with, and I knew who was going to interview me, and I'd write down the names of these people, and I'd write what they're about, right, where they're from. I knew everything about everyone I was going to meet before I went into the interview. And so I had a sense of who they were, what they cared about, and I could say something that was relevant to what they cared about. Mm-hmm. And that makes you memorable, right? Like if I, you know, meet you somewhere and you're like, oh, yeah, Tarek, you know, you went to Oxford, right? Like that was, the, and I'd be like, whoa, this person really cares. Like they know something about me. This is now a more positive interaction because you cared enough uh, to, to do some research, you know? So the, the chairman, the program director, the faculty members, and then even the residents can be really useful people to, to get to a sense of them, right? Because they can have an influence. I mean, not as influential as the chairman or the program director, but they could also be really useful because they are sometimes a part of the, the, that matching process, right? They'll probably interview with you. They'll, you know, probably make some, form, form some part of the decision-making because they have to work with you. Mm-hmm. Right? If, uh, for example, in my applications, usually it would be the fourth or the fifth year residents that would be interviewing us because those people would be my chiefs. And, uh, you know, since they're going to be my chiefs, they're pro- essentially going to be my boss when I'm a junior resident. And they want to know that they're going to be happy working with me. Um, so do, do, your research, do your research on those residents. Where did they go to school? What's their research interests? You know, what do they care about? Do they have families? You know, like things like that are oftentimes simple enough to find. I mean, oftentimes programs will just publish these things on social media or on their websites. Do that research and do it for every program because that makes you memorable. And that's how you can probably push yourself up on um, that rank list. Okay, so... What were some questions that you got asked, like common questions you got asked across your mm-hmm. interviews? Because you were saying, make sure you're prepared, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, sure, yeah. So I think, you know, common questions are, tell me about yourself, right? That's one of the, like, everyone will ask you that. So you mm-hmm. should have something prepared for that question. Because, you know, oftentimes, even though you prepare to know everyone, they probably don't know who you are. Exactly. So... Exactly. Uh, coming in, you need to have an interesting story um, about your journey, right? And why it is that you're here applying for their program. Um, oftentimes, they would ask me about, you know, my experiences, the things that they could quickly see on my, you know, my, my application. So that application that you've sent to all these programs, they get a printout of it on the interview day so even if they haven't really read through your profile they can quickly skim and see oh you went to oxford for a few years oh tell me about your research at oxford you know so they'll say something they'll ask you something about your profile about your cv and you know you should have you know reasonable answers because you put the profile together you know if they ask you about the research you did during your epidemiology rotation in falmouth and you can't tell them about you know, your screening, your cervical cancer screening uh, research project, then like that probably reflects poorly, you know? Um, so it's, a lot of those questions were really tailored. The questions that weren't tailored were like uh, kind of strange uh, personality questions. Like if you had the chance to change one thing in the world, what would you change? You know, like these are really like esoteric not particularly 
you, you can't prepare for questions like that. But sometimes they'll do that kind of that format of questioning just to ensure that you've even though you've prepared, they want to allow you the opportunity to just speak freely and to see how your mind works. So those you really can't prepare for. You know, like one of the questions was, uh, you know, would you rather be a hippopotamus or a rhinoceros and why? You know, th things like that, like, <laughs> well, you hippopotamus know, are like asses, so. <laughs> uh, they are, but, but I would <laughs> definitely prefer to be a hippo, right? Hippos are cool. They're, they're mad dangerous. They have this weird evil laugh. Like a rhino is just, you know, I don't want to have this See, thing going on Did you face. say they have this weird, this mad evil laugh? <laughs> they do. They do. And, and again, like and that's, the they were like, thing, what are you talking you know? about? Yeah, the water thing. Like, and they were like, what are you talking about an evil laugh? I was like, yeah, you should look it up. If you YouTube hippo evil laugh, you will hear like a maniacal <laughs> laughter of a hippo. It's really interesting. Oh right? So like God. things like that. I think we're like really random questions that were just kind of getting at your personality, you know, like another question was like, if you had three wishes, what would your wishes be? You know, like things like that were also um, some of the content. Um, very few programs will ask you medical questions, like questions that are. I feel like you've already clinical. proved, you've already proved your, right. you're knowledgeable. So at this point it's really to right. see, are you a good fit for this? And right. People right. are deaf. I, I recently wrote an article actually right before July on how to have a successful medical officer interview. And this wasn't something that I wrote from my own head. I actually asked persons who were involved in choosing residents and residents who had their interviews. And in our culture, people are like, oh, the interview is just a formality. You know, you're going to get the job anyways or you know, other older doctors would say interview. We never had that. You apply for the work and you show up for the work mm -hmm. on July 1. But I right. think we're going to start seeing as we have more and more doctors coming out and less and less spaces that our interview process mm -hmm. is going to be a bit more competitive. And there are persons sure. now who have even interviewed for a position and they haven't, they didn't get a call back for the post so it's no longer like a thing where the interview is just to say you did an interview. No. So mm. when I, when doing this, based on from the administrative from the administrative point of view, they wanted persons who they felt when they when they came into their department, it wasn't necessarily selfishly. It wasn't just about what mm. they could get from the department. But also, right. what could they give back to the department, and how would the experience sure. help them, and how would they give back to the institution? What is their interest in being a part of the community? And you know, maybe not necessarily feeling like, oh, I'm just doing this because I have no other option. And I think that we right. might, we might really and truly reach that point where, if I'm interviewing to go and work at KPH, for example, and I'm I'm interviewing to go and do um surgery i want to become a surgery resident and one of my interviewers i know that kph had some research on breast cancer i'm gonna you are going to want to reach a point where it looks like you did your homework even if you're not from yeah. that hospital you're saying you know i have a huge interest in breast cancer treatment and research 
or maybe if you're going to any it's like i have an interest in how to treat trauma cases and being a part of the the trauma study that we have going on you know and no i I really think in a couple years mark my words Mm -hmm. we're going to reach the point Mm -hmm. where our interviews are not just going to be a formality it's not going to be kind of like a I don't want to say joke thing because that don't sound good, but it it <laughs> is no so that people can be more. The word isn't decisive, but a little bit more picky with who. Yeah, no, discerning for sure, right? Yes, yeah, discerning no, no to come and work yeah. at their institution, but Absolutely. it's still kind of a oh. Most times, if you do interview there for the position, if it's yeah. four of you interview and there's a spot for three, more unlikely three persons will get the job but it might reach the point where it's like okay even though we have three spots available we're not just gonna take any three people you know um this might yeah no i think i think no i i completely agree with you and i think it's something that we don't do enough we don't prepare for interviews enough because we don't do that many exactly right like when i applied for medicine i just sent in an application And I heard back, you know, like, okay, you're, you've gotten into medicine. I didn't interview yeah. for this thing. Um, and same for internship. Like, you just send in an application and you hear back. Yep. Um, I think now, and especially if you want to be applying for programs in the U.S., the U.K., just internationally, you should do interview prep. Um, and that's something that was new to me after mm-hmm. medical school. Thankfully, I had some experience in terms of, like, roads interview preparation yeah. and then interviewing at other jobs and stuff while I was abroad. Um, but, but interview prep is preparation. You know, you write down questions that you think you could be asked mm-hmm. based on your profile. Cause that's usually how people will ask questions. So I would write down, you know, tell me about your research and I would think about how I would answer that question. And oftentimes you should probably get a loved one. Uh, you know, I ask my fiance oftentimes, my parents, you know, they would be my interview prep people mm-hmm. and they would just say, all right, tell me about yourself. And I would answer and they would give me feedback on what my answer was. Or they, they would say like, you know, tell me about your hobbies. And then, you know, you have to try and formulate that answer in an interesting way. And they'll give you an idea of whether or not it was interesting or not. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think that's something that we need to do more of. And if you want to be good, if you want to have a high chance of matching, uh, you should definitely, definitely invest time in in maximizing your interview prep. Exactly. So I think I think we've we talk a lot about doing the actual exams. We do, and I really mm-hmm. know, especially know because there's so many resource resources out there, and there's so many um, places where you can really go and find out information. And I'm realizing just from my limited research that. These websites, a lot of them, they have it step by step telling you how the process works. It's a very automatic, easy process. And I think what people and I don't think people no longer want the why because the why is going to be up to you. You have to decide why it is that you want to leave. I think know what persons need or what persons want to get is a more open discussion about, okay, I've decided I want to do these exams. What resources should I use for studying? What resources should I use in terms of testing? But also, mm-hmm. what hospitals or what residency programs um, are IMG, International Medical Graduate 
friendly? Um, how yeah. do I differentiate myself in an interview? And you, a lot of times, I think it's we think, oh, we need to do research. We need to do research. And honestly, Jamaica might not have a big research culture, you would say. But mm-hmm. I put it mm-hmm. to you: if you are interested in research, I say look at UE's. Uh, U, UE always has a research conference, and the persons who publish mm-hmm. publish kid you not almost every year. And oh, oh, you don't being published having a name on a paper sometimes really just comes down to helping them typing up and gathering data and stuff like that once you help out you're on it so reach out to consultants who are always doing research projects pitch an idea research to the we have a research institute is it no i think the sickle cell unit for example does Mm -hmm. a lot of research um i mean if anyone ever wants to just find a project that's a place that I'm sure would always have something to be done. Um, the epidemiology department yeah. at UA, you know, we spend a rotation there on ComHealth and like they, you know, we do a research project, right? Like we all have to do something. Um, those projects can be publishable. I've right? been like trying can... to get mine published for years. I'm so... no, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, well, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But but it's it's something that one can do, yeah. right? And I recently a class got theirs published. But yeah, what at the end of the day, when you want something, you're not gonna take no for an answer. You're going to find a way to get it. And right. it's just I remember someone gave me a story about a lesson that they had learned that when you have a goal, say for example, I want I'm at my house and I want to go to Sovereign Center. And there are three different pathways for me to go. I'm going to take the one that is going to take the least effort in quotation, meaning something that mm-hmm. I'm going to be able to get there quickly and I'm going to mm-hmm. be able to get there realistically. Like I'm not going to Absolutely. drive Absolutely. up the hill, then around the town and then down the hill. Like right. I'm going to look at it. So it's so important. Every time I have these conversations and even there are also persons who I talk to who not are not necessarily keen on maybe sharing or having a conversation, mm-hmm. but because I do this, I end up with a community of persons who are way so much willing to share. And there's sure. so much that happens outside of these podcasts. So I've been privy to a lot of stuff. And the main concept is really just about knowing what you want to do. And then finding the pathway that works for you. So if for you, you're here like, oh my gosh, I can't afford to do a program, um, an observership right now, but I want to get some research. You know what? Go to a consultant that you know. It's The information is online. UE has their publications. Look at someone who's always publishing. Always publishing and just just ask them. Just shoot your shot. Really? Oh, for sure. For sure. And I mean, like, I know that, you know, as Jamaicans, we, we tend to to be do well at sprinting, but you should not think about this application as a sprint. This application is a marathon. Yeah. Right. You need to think about it as a long term goal. And if you want to get it done, you have to lay the groundwork early and continuously press, mm-hmm. continuously try and check those boxes because there's no other way that you'll be successful. Uh, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. So I would definitely recommend preparation for that. I totally went off on a tangent. But when I, I wanted to bring it back bring back the point to differentiating yourself from others. 
And sure. if you guys don't know, I do have a USMLE group with persons who are at all varying levels of USMLE. It's on Telegram. I will put the link or you can just message me and I'll send you the link, whichever. But the, the question was asked in the group again with, oh, how am I going to differentiate myself? And it always goes back to kind of padding up your resume and making a resume. And that's great. But then mm-hmm. in this podcast, in this conversation that we've had, a big part of, yes, you're opening the door to get your foot through the door so you can get the interview. But it doesn't stop there. How do you differentiate yourself in that interview? Mm-hmm. Because you want to be memorable. Sure. You want to make an sure. impact. And sure. there's so many times where someone who may not have as an impressive resume as you has edged you out simply because when they went to the interview or even if they had the same type of resume but when they went to the interview they knocked it out of the park they knew about the institution that they wanted to go they showed that they'd be a great alumni a great addition to the team they showed that it wasn't just about getting out of jamaica becoming a resident in the states um becoming a consultant in the states or whatever it was more than that and they actually cared and they wanted to foster a relationship. And I think this is something that I want us to talk more about because when it comes to academics and doing well in tests and doing well on paper, I think Jamaicans, we're excellent international medical graduates. Now I want us to go into the interviews and be absolutely amazing and not leave the preparation to, hey, you matched. Can you tell me more about that? This I want this information to be out there. I want us to talk about it because there is no shame in wanting to go abroad. For whatever reason you yeah. want to go, there is no shame. And in, I think, unfortunately, we're not really encouraged to, we're not encouraged to talk about, oh, we're studying for the exams or we're flying out to do the exams. We're not necessarily encouraged to talk about it. Everybody say, oh, you're doing USMLE and everything is kind of hush-hush. Or, you know, you have your study groups in secret because, you know, just for various reasons. But I'm not saying tell everybody a business, but I am saying, yeah. especially for persons who have already been through it and have done the exams and been through the process, just talk about the process and it should just be readily available information. Um, and when you mm-hmm. search, I would love if like when you search on YouTube or even on the internet, say, okay, how to, how to ace my match interview and you're seeing Jamaican driven content. That would be sure. lovely because sure. Sure. we're the largest English speaking Caribbean country and our yeah. diaspora is really big. Yeah, so, no, yeah, I completely, completely agree. And I think to your point, you should always play to your strengths in this application process. And Jamaicans are lovable people, right? We're one of the groups of people that anywhere in the world, even though we're coming from a small place, everyone knows us and loves us. So, I mean, you know, people will, you know, if you're in the interview and things are going well, you know, you're hitting the marks that you prepared for bring some levity to the discussion, right? Jamaican people are known for being warm and friendly and mm-hmm. jovial. Like, bring that to the conversation. Bring that to their community, right? That's something that's an opportunity for them. Uh, you know, I, I always say that I like to bring Jamaican warmth to any community that I'm a part of. 
Um, and that's a good thing in a place like Boston where it's always cold. <laughs> you know, something like that can be really fun and jovial and that can give them a sense of, as a Jamaican, as a person that's coming from this interesting culture, you bring that diversity and that diversity is so important now mm-hmm. um, that like you can play to that strength. Uh, and at your individual strengths as well, right? Like, for example, in an interview, someone said, well, where's the best, you know, Jamaican food in Boston? And I said, oh, at my house. You know, like, I cook a lot. <laughs> I love cooking. You want jerk chicken, you come to my place. You know, things like that, I think, are the ways in which you shine more in your personality and show them how, as an individual, you have things to bring to the table. But you're also kind of a fun, cool person, Um that and that, that's just unique, right? Because let's be real here. No, there's no other group of people that's cooler than Jamaica. Exactly. Um. So, so yeah, there always will be, uh, you know, value in sh- letting that shine. Exactly. I I don't think we have anything else to say. I think this was okay. an excellent conversation. I'm so glad that we had this life update yeah, from you. Yeah. You know, I can't thank you. Thank you. I can't wait until you know you're at your boards and <laughs> all that and I'm I did want to say I did want to say one last thing and I mean I hate to to be a Debbie donor. But but I I would also like to say cuz you you know you mentioned the fact that um you know people might not mention that they're applying for mm-hmm. USMLE or they kind of like do it in quiet and secret. I understand why because I think you also need to prepare for failure, right? Like there is the possibility, the ever-looming possibility of failure. Um, and that's not to say that failure is not, it's, it's okay, right? Mm-hmm. It's something that happens to all of us at some point in life. You just need to know what you do if failure occurs. Yep. And for me, that meant like I would participate in the scramble, right? Like the soap process, I was prepared for that. What would I soap into? I would try and do a prelim gen surge or I'd go into neurology, right? Like that's something I was prepared for. Or I'd go and do a pre-residency fellowship. I'd go and do, you know, some more clinical experience. That's, that's the preparation that you have to have because if you don't have it, you can be devastated. Uh, and I think a lot of people do these things quietly because they don't want to, to feel publicly devastated. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I think that that's very understandable. Um, so, you know, that's the approach you take, fine. But preparing for failure is an important step. So, you know, have yourself a parachute, something that you're going to land on if things don't work out. And and what are the, the steps going forward? Yeah. How do you build on the experience um, in the setting of failure, right? Because I, I think everything that, that's made me a better person because I failed at something. It's funny that you mentioned this because I remember talking to a friend of mine and sharing with them um, my idea for this kind of mini series where I talk about the international exams, and they shared with me they they matched they they matched um, a few years ago, and you know did their residency, and they said to me, Sam, the thing is, a lot of persons tend to match not on their first go, but sometimes mm-hmm. on their second. And it's not something that persons will necessarily talk about. And um, it's really interesting that we bring that as definitely cognizant and not seeing failure as this end. But again, if it's something that you want, 
You just always have to re-strategize, strengthen your CV or whatever it is, or your interview skills or whatever it is, and be honest with yourself and say, hey, um, where did I fall down? How could I be better? Maybe go back to the drawing board. Is this what I really want? Is this the program that I really want? I can't remember who I heard. I think I went to a one of the one of the talks and someone said if you want to do you have to be realistic with yourself you want to do orthopedics but you're not willing to put in the work then choose an easy <laughs> choose an easier specialty like you know Absolutely. bring your Absolutely. bring bring it down a notch be more realistic with Absolutely. your goals and absolutely i mean again like you can evaluate where you land mm-hmm. once you've done the preparation right you've taken usmles if you not if you're applying without us clinical experiences or research take a look at that website and see what happens if you apply with the profile you have mm-hmm. do you end up matching or not matching and i mean if it means that you don't end up matching look at a different specialty right if you look at a specialty like i don't know you know other specialties are you know less competitive less competitive and you can do, you know, uh, family medicine or, you know, psychiatry. And those co- programs are great programs, um, but are not as competitive as an orthopedics or a plastic surgery. Like, it, it, people are happy there. And I think if you can do that and be happy, then go for it, you know. Um, but, but set realistic expectations for yourself. Um, and don't think about failure as an endpoint, as you said, like, I think all of us had to cite the first IV that didn't work out, <laughs> right? And then you cite another IV that don't work out. And you keep trying until you get successful. Yep. Um, and that's that, that when you get to that level of success, there's no turning back, right? Exactly. Um, so this was, I think, this was a great conversation. It really, truly was. I hope persons will find value from this. Um there, it was just a lot of nuggets. A lot of nuggets. Yeah, and I hope I, I could be useful. I, I think so. A, a lot of times after these podcasts, persons genuinely do message me and reach out to me and say, hey, Sam, you know, thank you for this. It really helped me. I know of at least one person now that um, made the final, final decision and actually paid for the exam and said, okay, yes, this is what I'm going to do because of the content that um, I've created and because persons like you are sharing your experiences and sharing your lessons that you've learned on my platform, which I'm so grateful for because I definitely couldn't do it if I didn't have anybody who wasn't willing to be vulnerable and honestly talk about their experiences, their successes and their failures. But people are genuinely being inspired and they're realizing it's, it really isn't just about leaving Jamaica. It's really about knowing what they want and yeah. being honest with themselves, themselves and being honest about the amount of work that they're willing to put in and then trying. And then I think also people see persons who are like themselves, which is why I like to bring it down to concepts and not necessarily um, what someone may have done but to bring back the themes because then they can say, hey, if they did it, I can do it too, you know? And I think that's really valuable. And I think I'm just going to keep, I'm going to continue having these conversations just so more and more persons can be inspired and realize that, hey, it's completely okay to want to be a doctor in Jamaica, do your internship, do your SHO, be a MO or be a GP or going to residency here. 
that's completely okay. But I don't want anybody to feel like they have to do that because they have no other choice or they have no other options or that's all there is to becoming a doctor in Jamaica, mm-hmm. but that there's options inside of medicine, outside of medicine, and you're just able to become, you're able, you're able to achieve your dreams and you're able to dream big yeah. and decide what you want to do. And sure. how powerful having an MBBS degree or being a part of medicine or having a DR in front of your name, how that can really be an sure. asset to your life. Yeah. You know? No, I mean, listen, I, one, thank you again for having me and uh, thank you for having this platform and, mm. and having these conversations. <laughs> um, as you said, like I was a regular person and I'm a regular person. Like I used to kick rock stone and play money football you know like that was my life you know not that long ago um and so i think i if i could speak to Tarek of 10 15 years ago and tell him like this is what you can achieve if you really mm-hmm. are passionate and you really prepare i don't think um Tarek at wilma's boy school would believe me so i think you know anybody who's out there who's thinking about it who's dreaming big it's not impossible you are great you can be great work hard, work towards your goals, and you can achieve it. Fantastic. So where can we find you if you want to keep in touch? You know, um, are you open to person sending you questions, messages? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I'm on the social medias. Uh, I use Instagram mostly, which I think is probably most common for our generation. Um, it's at TQ Parko. Um, I'm also on Twitter mm-hmm. at Dr. Tarek Parko. Um, but yeah, shoot me a message. Uh, you know, it's sometimes I don't respond right away because, you know, I'm currently working and it's it's been quite demanding. Mm-hmm. But but absolutely love to to impart any advice or, or help those who, who need some assistance. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Congrats on the engagement. I did not miss that. Thank you. You know, you know. Thank you. <laughs> But um, if you want to get in touch with me, you can send me a message. I'm very responsive on my messages. The best places to get me are via direct message or even via email. You can send me a message on my Instagram or on my Twitter. I actually use Twitter way more than Instagram um, at the layman's DR. Or you can send me an email at the layman's doctor all spelled out at gmail.com and of course you can check out my website www.thelaymansdoctor.com you can also send me messages through there listen to the podcast no anywhere that you're listening to this podcast please subscribe rate it and leave a comment especially on apple um podcast it means a lot to me and does a lot for like my ratings and stuff and how many people this podcast reach thank you so much for listening and until next time bye thank you so much dr parker thank you for having me sam